And I will, uh, once I'd just like to pray again as we, uh, launch into this study again. Uh, dear God, thank you that we can do this. Thank you that we can do this this way. Um, help us all to be able to be focused and to think clearly in the middle of the afternoon, um, staring into screens. Um, I pray that you would, uh, overcome the weaknesses that I bring to this enterprise and that you would bless these friends according to your strength and grace and goodness. Um, we do pray that we would be able to read your word honestly and with integrity, that we would hear it, uh, that we would learn and grow. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Hey, Heather. Good to see you. Um, so today and next week, we're going to be in this portion of Luke from chapter 9 to 19, basically. Um and uh what I want to do is work from the handouts that I sent you. Everybody get those handouts okay? Uh there were four of them at the end of the day. Three of them kind of go together, just kind of laying out the uh narrative um in Luke vis-a-vis Matthew and Mark, and then the other one some samples uh comparing Matthew and Luke. Everybody get that all right? Good. I'll take that as a yes. Um so today and next week, I want to <coughs> spend our time in this section of Luke from chapter 9 to 19, basically from after the transfiguration uh, into the uh, entry into Jerusalem and the portion there where the narratives rejoin coming into that entry. Today, what I want to focus on are passages that um, present parallels between what we find in Luke in those chapters and what we find in Matthew. And then next week, we'll focus on the portions that are unique to Luke. I will go ahead and let you know, um, next week will probably be more fun than this week um, to be able to look at those passages in Luke that are unique to Luke and that sort of add this richness um, that he that he adds. Um, but we will do some work today uh, thinking through what's going on here um, as to what Luke is doing when he comes alongside, I think, Mark and Matthew and gives us this this longer account to get from Peter's profession and the transfiguration down to the entry into Jerusalem. As you recall, last week we saw that Matthew takes really just about three and a half chapters to do that. Mark takes just a chapter and a half to do that. Luke takes at least nine chapters um, to get from that same point into into Jerusalem. So there's a lot of additional work going on here in Luke. One thing that is striking about it is that anything that appears in Luke between chapter 9 and 19, between the transfiguration and the entry to Jerusalem, anything that appears in Luke in that section that also appears in Matthew appears either very early in Matthew's gospel or very late in Matthew's gospel. It does not appear in Matthew 17 to 20. In other words, Matthew does not locate in that portion of his gospel between the transfiguration and the entry to Jerusalem, any of the things that Luke locates there with just a couple of very small exceptions. So it is pretty striking and and if nothing else, it does make me think all the more that while Luke is giving us a kind of a chronological account, um, clarifying points of confusion, if all you've got is Mark and Matthew in front of you, and then completing those accounts, 
or complementing them with additional material that Matthew clearly is working the material differently. He is moving material up front into, for instance, the Sermon on the Mount, or he is pushing it back into the final week where in Jesus's final week in Jerusalem, we have several of the pieces um, in Matthew's gospel that we will find in Luke's gospel uh, still before the entry into Jerusalem. So it's an interesting set of questions um, and certainly raises plenty of questions. But I, but my fundamental argument would be um, Matthew is working the material in a way that conforms to the argument he's making and the argument structures the book. OK, they all make the same argument in the sense that they all present Jesus as the Christ. But Matthew structures his book around the argument and he sort of pulls episodes and teachings in uh, in order to serve that argument in the way he develops it. We saw it reaches a climax with Peter's profession, the transfiguration, and then he moves quickly into Jerusalem and, and achieves a, sort of another um, high point, obviously, in the death and resurrection of Jesus in that in that final portion of the gospel. Luke's narrative runs in a different way. Certainly, you have a kind of a climax, a high point in Peter's profession. But then Luke seems to want to really develop the story um, before we get into Jerusalem. And I'll come back to say this at the end, but but as you prepare for next week, and I hope you get a chance to read chapters 9 to 19 in Luke at least once between now and then, um, look for the themes that you see Luke developing, particularly that you see as, as distinctive to Luke's gospel. And then also try to get a sense for just what is he doing? How is he developing the narrative? What is happening both in the stories that he is doubling that you can find in Matthew, uh, but also in the unique material that he is bringing. How is Luke developing that? <clears throat> um, all three gospels are presenting this period from the transfiguration to the entry of Jerusalem as oriented toward Jerusalem. Um, and it is important to see that in Luke, even though we have a lot of material and some time seems to pass, um, it is worth noting that it's all framed within this movement to Jerusalem. So if you have Luke available um, in chapter 9, verses 21 and 22, we have that original statement that parallels the other Gospels um, in which Jesus says that he is going to be, um, he's going to suffer many things. He's going to be rejected by the elders, chief priests and scribes, be killed and raised up on the third day. And then at the end of Luke 9, in verse 51, it says, this is, this is unique to Luke. It came about when the days were approaching for his, his rising up. And that can be interpreted either as being lifted up on the cross or as his ascension. Um, as the days approached toward the end of Jesus's exodus, if you will, he resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem. So it's interesting. I mean, we're just still in chapter nine, just barely past the transfiguration. And Luke is framing this entire next nine chapters in that framework. Jesus is resolutely setting his face toward Jerusalem. In chapter 13, then. Verse 22. Um, we are told that Jesus was passing through one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. And later in that same chapter, in verses 33 and 34, he says, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next, where it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. And then we have Jesus' lament 
over Jerusalem. In chapter 17, yet again, verse 11, um, we are told simply almost in passing, while he was on his way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. And then in chapter 18, verse 31, he takes the 12 aside and says to them, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. Um, so just that to say that while this is a much longer section of a gospel, it's the entirety is framed in this framework of Jesus resolutely setting his face toward Jerusalem and going that direction. Remember when Elijah and Moses and Jesus were together in that moment of transfiguration, Luke's gospel is the one that tells us what they were talking about was Jesus's exodus that he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. So it's, it's all got that kind of a framework um, uh, throughout this entire section. So then what I want us to do <coughs> is um, look at these three handouts that just sort of summarize the flow of Luke's gospel and place it alongside Matthew. And for today, I just want to sort of point toward places where Luke's material is doubled in some sense in Matthew's gospel. There's very little, very little doubling in Mark. Um, so it's a, it's a, mostly a Luke Matthew question. So if you just kind of walk with me through this, we're in, um, at the end of chapter nine, <clears throat> there is a curious question about Samaritans resisting him, given that he has his face toward Jerusalem. And then the, uh, little episode of people giving excuses for, uh, the fact that they want to follow, but they've got to sort of do something, something else first. And then as you go into chapter 10, the appointing and 70, sending of the 70, um, is unique to Luke, but the instruction that Jesus gives them overlaps the, the instruction that Jesus gives to the 12 in Matthew. Um, a little further down in chapter 10, Jesus is rejoicing over the fathers revealing these truths to the simple is doubled in Luke and Matthew. Um, and then you skip down to chapter 11. In chapter 11 of Luke, we have the Sermon on the Plain, as it's called, and there are parallels then to the Sermon on the Mount, as Matthew gives us that sermon in chapters 5 to 7. And you'll see in the cross-references over here, some of the material is uh, over in Matthew 6 or 7. <clears throat> His teaching on prayer and a version of the Lord's Prayer. Um, the instruction to ask, seek, and knock. The idea that a father will not give his son a snake if he asks for a fish. The accusation that Jesus is in accord with Beelzebub. Um, a little further down, the sign of Jonah. Once again, back into the Sermon on the Mount, a lamp on a stand should be where people can see it and where it can do some good. And the eye is the lamp of the body. Luke then includes a portion where Jesus weighs in pretty heavily on the Pharisees and their hypocrisy. Uh, Luke gives it to us here in this portion. Matthew will have something like that in chapter 23 in the final week of Jesus's life. Go to the next page. And in chapter 12, 
There is warning about leaven, which we've seen, um, well, in first semester we saw was really a theme in Mark um, and also in Matthew. And then the instruction not to blaspheme the Holy Spirit uh, is in both um, Luke and Matthew. Then we get some more of the sermon material. Uh, Do not be anxious. Your father will take care of you. Seek his kingdom. See, that's Matthew 6. That's the Sermon on the Mount. Lay up treasure in heaven. That's also Matthew 6. Um, Being ready for Christ's return. Being faithful servants is um, one of the other themes. A couple lines down, being ready as faithful stewards. We'll get some more of that um, later in chapter 13. You get that kind of thing in both Luke and Matthew. Um, And then at the end of chapter 12, um, some more instruction that Jesus actually brings division and that uh, we are urged to make peace. Again, part of the Sermon on the Mount. In chapter 13 of Luke, we have a couple of parables, the mustard seed and the leaven in the dough, which we can find in Matthew 13. One more piece of the Sermon on the Mount is enter by the narrow door. And then some teaching about the the final coming of Jesus, and then the first will be last, and then weeping over Jerusalem. Um, Luke has that in this portion of his gospel. And again, Matthew will have that late in the gospel in that final week as he as he enters in. In chapter 14, there is a parable about filling the seats at the table. Um, a similar parable in Matthew, but one that I think is pretty different. At the bottom of that page, the uselessness of salt that's gone bad. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its flavor, it's useless. Um, that's here in Luke and also in the Sermon on the Mount. And then moving into chapter 15, um, the accusation that Jesus is a friend of sinners, and then the parable of the lost sheep. You'll see that that parable of the lost sheep is one of the very few things in this section of Luke that shows up in the parallel section of Matthew. In other words, in between the transfiguration and the entry into Jerusalem. Chapter 16, the teaching about two masters, again, a piece of the Sermon on the Mount, and then the idea that the law will not fail, but will be fulfilled, and that divorce is a form of adultery. This is all, again, Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, um, and here in Luke, and then uh, the teaching of forgiveness in chapter 17, and the parable of faith the size of a mustard seed also finds a parallel in um in Matthew and again we've got just a couple of little bits that actually appear appear in Matthew in this same period that we're talking about. Um in chapter 18 Luke continues finishes with just a couple of things that are unique to his account and then with uh, 18 verse 15 um you see that we rejoin the narrative of the other gospels and having rejoined pretty quickly we move through Jericho and up into Jerusalem. Uh, for that for that final week um let me just pause there that's that's just kind of a quick look um but but i want to at least sort of give you an idea that this is a mix of sections in which we have parallels between luke and matthew and intermittently uh, additional material in luke um as well 
Um, any questions that just immediately come to mind and having taken that glimpse at these nine chapters? Uh, pull up the other uh, handout. And I want us to just um, linger over this question of how Luke's material should be understood alongside Matthew's material. Like I say, I'm asking you to kind of wade into the weeds here today and we'll do some, we'll do some work. Um, but I trust it will turn out to be fruitful. Um, and, and if nothing else, it just, just sort of make us take seriously how these gospels are written and, and how they're developed by their authors. I'd suggest that there, there is then this material where it's kind of easy because it's unique to Luke. So we got several of those we'll come back to next week. And then there are several things in Luke that are very similar to Matthew. And maybe even when you first look at them, you might think they are the same, but then you read them and you go, mm, no, this one's different. So instance, uh, an example of that would be in Luke 10, you have the young man come up to Jesus and ask him about eternal life. And there's a discussion of the great commandments, the first the commandment to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbors yourself. And then a discussion follows. You might think that's the same as one you will find elsewhere in the Gospels. Uh, but then you're reading, oh, no, this is a different occasion, clearly a different occasion. And it leads to this story of the Good Samaritan. I would suggest, <clears throat> if you want a good example of this, look at Luke chapter 14 and Matthew 22. And... There you'll find a parable about the banquet. It's sort of the wedding feast imagery. And the host is inviting people in. And for various reasons, they reject the invitation. And the story kind of goes on from there. The, the stories are really quite similar. But then when you put them alongside each other, you go, hmm, it looks like a very similar point is being made. But the stories are two very different stories in the end. And and the details of the stories are different enough where you go, mm, these are similar, but clearly different. And so I would say what we have here is another example in front of us, which is the passage known in Matthew as the Beatitudes. And in Luke chapter six as Beatitudes as well. Those of you who are in the fall class know we looked at this then. And we could see similarities. But we also were struck increasingly by the differences. So in the Beatitudes, as we have them in Matthew, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And then over in Luke, chapter or verse 20, blessed are you who are poor. Verse 21, blessed are you who hunger now. And then further down in Luke, we move away from blessings or beatitudes to woes or warnings. Verse 24, woe to you who are rich, woe to you who are well fed, woe to you who laugh now, woe to you when all men speak well of you. So I think that's a, that's another good example of similar teaching. But I think at the end of the day, it's, it's pretty clear we've got different teaching and certainly different occasions here. Is that a fair assessment? And it's quite believable that Jesus would have said both things. 
taught both ways and that we as readers and would-be followers should hear both versions and take both versions seriously. He's making different points that are curiously similar or at least connected um, as well, isn't he? So similar, but I think different and very imaginable that Jesus would have said both of these things and may well have said both of these things more than just once. Then you move down the page to the passage there in Matthew 7 and Luke 6, and you move from similar but different to very similar, <laughs> and, and it becomes a little bit harder to know just what's going on. Are, are we talking about the same episode and the same teaching, um, or, or are we looking at two different things? I will read Matthew, and you can look at Luke, okay? So as I read Matthew, you look at Luke and see, are, are, we, are we reading the same teaching in the same episode, or do we maybe have two different episodes? So here's Matthew. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house. And yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. What's your sense? Are we talking about the same episode just told slightly differently? Or do you see enough differences to think we've got a couple different tellings? How would you read this? Anybody got a thought? Is the question more like, is he kind of like giving the same parable, same teaching in two different instances? Or if it's like, or like at the same time, like they were both there at the same time. Now they're writing it out and they're like recalling it differently. Or if it's like two different teachings altogether. Yeah, that's exactly the question. Well said. <laughs> And and just to be clear, Luke would not have been there. Luke Luke would be getting this secondhand uh, through some source. Uh, Matthew, well, here it raises a very interesting question because as Matthew tells the gospel, he does not become a disciple until chapter nine, I think it is. Um, but it's it's clearly after the recording of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, which is where we get this in Matthew as part of the Sermon on the Mount, right at the end of that sermon. And then subsequent to that, Matthew becomes a disciple. Now, that doesn't mean Matthew didn't hear this little saying. Um, I, as I say, I, I think Matthew works with this material. The, the idea that Matthew would have taken a bunch of sayings of Jesus and incorporated them into an initial sermon, a kind of a kingdom manifesto, to start the gospel is not crazy. Uh, and it would be a sermon that Jesus probably would have given in some version or another many times, maybe um, exactly in that version. I don't know, but 
but the words and the actual teachings would all be Jesus's teaching. It, it would be a fair representation of what Jesus taught. Um, but all of that is to say, very interesting question, just as to how Matthew or Luke would have gotten hold of these words and, and what their sources would have been. But Heather, were you going to say something further? Um, It sounds to me like it could have just been like the difference between a firsthand account and like a secondhand account. Mm-hmm. That's a very interesting way to put it. Yeah. With the passage that you mentioned about building your house on the rock, it seems to me like they're pretty much talking about the same thing and the same purpose, but in Luke, there's just a greater emphasis. Like they're both talking about the cost of disobedience uh, in terms of here's the good that happens if you do follow me and here's the bad that happens if you don't. But Luke just seems to be putting a greater degree of emphasis on it uh, with the opening rhetorical question that he has that is not present there in the Matthew reading that that you had um, and are you thinking of the woes up in the Luke 6 passage or or this uh, bit about oh, uh, sorry I, w- I was talking about the house on, on the rock the passage that uh, you had read and what's the uh, I'm sorry is there a question that you're looking at oh sorry I thought you were just asking what what we thought about on which side of the coin it falls in terms of is it uh, the same thing from a different perspective right. or are they talking about two different things? No, and I'm sorry, Michael, say again then what you just said, because I, I, I misunderstood one part of what you said, I think. Yeah, so what uh, I'm talking about Luke 6, 46 to the end of the chapter, to me it seemed like it was pretty much trying to function in the same way of what you read in Matthew in terms of the the cost of disobedience and the good that comes of putting Jesus's words into practice. But Luke just puts uh, an additional emphasis on it with that opening rhetorical question that Jesus has to make it, to really give it more punch and, and drive it home in, in, in a way that is not there in the other one, which to me seems they're much more similar than the Matthew and Luke Beatitudes, where it's a, a difference in like time orientation of like or of spiritualizing uh, the yeah. items in question. That's interesting, Michael. And part of what you just did, and I'm glad we caught it, is I only start the Luke 6 47 to 49 with verse 47. You're in the biblical text and you included verse 46. So just so everybody knows it, that's where. Jesus asks the question that Michael's referring to, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? And then he says, everyone who comes to me and hears my words. So it's that frames this, this little um, illustration or this little bit of teaching. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. There, there's always a question in any of this teaching as to what language Jesus may have been using when he was teaching. And whether it was speaking in Aramaic or in Greek, um, I don't want to make too much of that, but it's certainly possible that a lot of the teaching we have in the Gospels would already be a translation into Greek. Um, so there is room for uh, even sort of different ways of capturing in the translation. Um, it, I, you know, the more I read it, 
the, there are these differences. It's like in Luke, um, a flood occurs. In Matthew's telling, the rain falls, the floods come, the winds blow. Um, in Luke, it's that he digs deep and lays a foundation. In Matthew, it's just he builds on the rock. There, there are these little differences. They're not big. It could well be the same thing. And Heather's idea that it, it could well be a firsthand and a secondhand account that's giving us the same thing. Um, it, it's also true that this strikes me as the kind of teaching that Jesus would have given more than once, that this would be a repeated part of his wisdom for people. And that you've got this picture of an itinerant preacher, teacher, walking around frequently followed by a crowd or by some cluster of people. He's teaching, he's teaching, he's teaching. You get pictures like when he's feeding the 5,000, they've spent a couple of days together listening to Jesus teach. Um, what was it, what was he saying? Yeah, one could easily imagine that Jesus often used a picture like this to, to try to capture the difference between those who were ready to follow and those who refused, those who were going to build their lives on rock and those who are building their lives in sand. Um, and it's, it's pretty memorable. Um, and, and I, and I, it doesn't surprise me that Luke would repeat it, that this, this is kind of core central teaching. And people heard this more than once if they were hanging around with Jesus. Um, the slowness of the disciples to get a hold of things, remember, and the, and the process of growing and getting it. How many times do you need to be told to build your house on a rock instead of on the sand before it starts to take hold? And you go, Oh, you know, I think what that means is, and, and you start actually implementing as best you can what, what you think the implications of this teaching are. I mean, probably for any of us on this screen, we've heard this bit of teaching before. We know this image about the rock and the sand. Um, how many times do we need to hear it for it to start to grab us and, and make a difference? Um, the next passage, just I think it's kind of similar. Matthew 18 and Luke 17. And I will read again Matthew, and you can look at Luke or sort of both of them at the same time. Peter comes to Jesus and says, Lord, how often should my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Luke, be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I am so sorry, I repent, forgive him. Making the same point, I think in this case, we've got two different versions of how Jesus might have made the point. Does that seem reasonable? Captures the same idea. Uh, in the first case, it's forgiven, forgiven, forgive, and don't count. And in the second case, it's forgiven, forgiven, forgive, even if he comes back seven times in a day. Have, have a spirit of forgiveness. Forgive others as your heavenly father has forgiven you. Um, and there would be different ways that Jesus would articulate that truth and that instruction. 
Uh, then turn the page over. And now we move into what I would call a fourth category that are not simply very similar or similar but different and certainly not unique. Here we've got some passages that are out and out identical. And so it raises some interesting questions. First one from Matthew 7 and Luke 11. <clears throat> Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, and he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. He continues, or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? First paragraph identical, right? Word for word. And then going on from there, very similar kind of illustration, but on Matthew, we've got a loaf and a stone. In Luke, we've got a fish and a snake. And then in Matthew, we've got a fish and a snake. And in Luke, an egg and a scorpion. And at the end, your father in heaven gives what is good in Matthew, and your father in heaven gives the Holy Spirit to those who ask him in Luke. And we'll just read right on down through this page and then sort of try to figure out what to make of these things. Uh, the next one, uh, Jesus sees a crowd around him. He gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. Then a scribe came and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. To that point, I think, identical. And then Luke continues, but as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. And then another one says, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. And Jesus says to him, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Next, Matthew 6 and Matthew and Luke 16. No one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Luke is identical with the one minor change that he says, not no one, but no servant can serve two masters. And then in Matthew 23 and Luke 13, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate, for I say to you, you will not see me until the time when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And again, I think we've got an identical 
reading in Luke. There, there are a couple of very slight, very minor little changes in the Greek, um, sort of a verb form a little bit, but um, it's the English rightly captures the fact that these are identical passages as well. So what are we to make of this? What, what kind of conclusions do we uh, come to as to how to understand what's going on here in these passages, particularly where it's word for word identical, but then often coupled with something that really fits with that passage, but extends it in some way that then becomes unique to each gospel. I'll just say again, I, I do find this as confirming of my theory that Matthew is using this material in a particular way, ordering it in a particular way. Luke comes along, clarifies things, and in this case is placing some of this teaching where he would see it fitting chronologically, I think. I think that's what's going on. That, that That's at least part of what's going on. I'm not sure that's all he's interested in doing here. But I think he is doing that much. Um, what else do you, what do you make of this though? Do you, do you have other thoughts on, on why Luke would be repeating these sayings and why we have them word for word identical? Is Luke's account coming after Matthew's? Yeah, good question. Uh, you know, my personal argument is that it is, and there would be many scholars who would agree with that view, um, that Mark and Matthew are first, and then Luke third and John fourth. Um, I, I, I think the best way to make sense of what's going on in Matthew, Mark, and Luke is to see Matthew and Mark as first, no matter which of those you, you think of as having been put down on paper first. And so then Luke comes along and he has both of them available to him um, and, and, and knows that there is confusion. So he clarifies these points of confusion and then um, gives us the material in a more straightforward chronological way and then complements that other material by adding to it. In, in which case we've got a question here is Luke seeing these teachings in Matthew's gospel and then just pulling them from Matthew's gospel and putting them in his own gospel, but putting them in a different way. Is that what's going on? The the alternative would be that the two of them have some common source that they are both drawing on. And that is one of the theories as to what's happening here. And I think it's got a lot to be said for it, honestly. The, the, um, if you look at discussions of it, it will be known as the Q source or the Q document or the Q gospel in some people's reckoning of it. And, and what's implied is that particularly these word for word parallels that we've got in Luke and Matthew suggest that they were working from a common source. Matthew pulling the teachings of Jesus in from that source and incorporating them into the gospel the way he did. Luke doing his research and pulling these teachings into his gospel in a way that was more chronological in this ordering. Um, 
And then as with a lot of things having to do with biblical studies, you'll, you'll find that, you know, there's a, there's a divide between on the one extreme, there, there's extremes on the one extreme, people who have a strong view of scripture and a high view of inspiration don't want to be thinking in terms of sources like that or Q or something. What, what are we talking about here? Um, and, and so any suggestion of that becomes problematic to them. I don't think it needs to. I, I think it's perfectly reasonable that the Holy Spirit can be guiding these authors and they can be drawing on sources. I mean, Luke says that's what he's doing, for crying out loud. Um, and then there's on the other extreme, scholars who get a hold of something like a Q document and they just start getting really creative with it, it seems to me. And, and, and what they do is turn it from a simple source on which um, these writers might have drawn and they turn it into a separate gospel and a separate gospel tradition. And then they argue that it has priority over Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then they argue that it is just teachings and Jesus doesn't appear as the incarnate son of God. There is no sense of him being the Christ. There is no reference to his death or resurrection. Um, there is no reference to him being the lamb of God. None of that. And so then these scholars want to argue that that was the real Jesus. He was an itinerant preacher, had these kind of wise things to say. And then other people came along later and turned him into something very different. Um, I think, honestly, that kind of argument becomes hard to make, hard to make work. And And part of what does seem to happen in that is that then those scholars rightly feel like they've got to sort of recreate this Q document. And so they'll take some of the passages like the ones we have in front of us, which kind of suggests the idea of Q, and then they kind of go from there. And they pull out of Luke or Matthew the stuff that they want to have in that Q document that would lend itself to this more sort of human, um, de-divinized understanding of Jesus um, that they want to argue has priority and should have been what we knew about Jesus all along before before this this group of people like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John came along and made us think very differently. Now, I'm I'm much more inclined to think that there is a kind of a Q source. Even in thinking about it coming into today and talking with students this morning, I, I'm increasingly inclined to see it as a as an an oral tradition source. Um it is interesting. Part of part of what we're dealing with here is that there is no extant copy of any Q document. Um, in other words, there are no manuscript fragments or whole manuscripts or anything that can be identified as a Q document. There is no reference, as far as we can tell, in any of the early church fathers of a Q-type document. There is one line in Papias that some people suggest might possibly could be a reference to such a thing, but it's a it's a bit of a stretch. Um, so, so what are we dealing with here? I, I do wonder whether there isn't an oral tradition, um, that's quite understandable and it would grow very, very much right out of Jesus's teaching and, and very quickly upon his death and resurrection that these are the treasured sayings of Jesus and we remember them. We, some of us, many of us heard him say these things and these become part of the core of understanding Jesus and what he has to say to his followers. So that as this so-called sect of the Nazarene develops, 
this this is central to the tradition these these are these are treasured truths and instructions of our savior whom we know as the christ and so we are we are holding on to them and husbands and wives are teaching each other they're teaching their children the children then are teaching their children and i could easily imagine that when people in the first century first get a hold of matthew's gospel or luke's gospel or hear it in some form they would they would hear it and go oh yeah i i recognize that bit about the ask seek knock yeah and about the treasures in heaven and about building your house on the rock yeah my mom taught me that and she said her mom and dad had taught her that and this is all part of what jesus taught and and it would be very recognizable as jesus's teaching when it shows up in these gospels that are now preserving in written form these key central truths it it is interesting to me that um overwhelmingly the pieces that are in view with regard to a shared source are pieces like the ones we just looked at i mean think about what we're what we're looking at ask seek knock ask and it will be given to you seek and you will find knock and it will be open to you number 1 how memorizable is that i it's really memorizable, even for a bunch of Google saturated people like ourselves who can hardly imagine a, an oral tradition notion. It was hard enough to imagine 40 years ago. Now, God bless all of you. I, I, I mean, it's just, it's so foreign. You don't have to remember a thing. All you've got to do is ask Siri or Google or whatever it is you do. And there it is for you. This is extremely rare in human history. Most human communities of every sort had oral traditions in which there were things that were memorized word for word and handed down and taught. And, and this is, this is that kind of thing. The imagery of what will, will, will a person give a stone when asked a loaf, a snake when he's asked a fish to his own children? Um, you can't serve two masters. Either, either you're going to love the one and hate the other or hate the one and despise the other or love the other. You can't serve God and stuff. These, these are very memorable and, and I think would have been very much a part of the living community of those who, who were in the position to make the real judgment about who Jesus was. They didn't come across along a century or a century and a half later. They were people who came right off of it and they saw the extraordinary things being claimed about Jesus and they were in a position to say, are these things Crazy to the point of you just can't believe it? Or are these things actually the truth that we came to know was true? The the claims are extraordinary. It's very believable that people didn't believe the claims about Jesus. The question to me is why did anybody ever believe any of them? And, And it seems the simplest, most straightforward answer is because they were in a position where they couldn't not believe it. It was, it was so real and compelling to them that they knew it. And that community of Christ followers who knew him as Christ also knew these kinds of teachings and treasured them and passed them forward. And, and I wonder whether it was the, enough of a discreet oral tradition that both Matthew and Luke are drawing on it. Maybe it was a written document of some sort, maybe somewhere, maybe it was circulated, maybe some of it was scribbled down. Remember, we don't have Xerox machines or printing presses at this point. How quickly these things would have been written down in any form is hard to say. 
but I, but I'm I'm inclined to think there is that kind of of understanding of the sayings of Jesus and Matthew and Luke are capturing them and while Matthew gives them to us Luke is also not just giving us a more chronological telling I think Luke is also saying I want you to hear these things twice <laughs> and and again and again these things are things worth repeating and again I would suggest to you look at the things that are parallels look at the dual passages and you tell me are these central core teachings of Jesus? To which I think the answer is absolutely yes. And they are worth hearing again. And so I think part of what's going on in Luke in these nine chapters is he is building it and building it and continuing to give us more and more of a sense of the kingdom and what it means to follow Christ. And he is doing it in this period between the profession of faith and transfiguration and the entry into, into Jerusalem. But it's that same kind of building of an understanding of what it means to be a part of the kingdom and to follow Christ as king. Um, we're about out of time, I think. Um, but what, what are your thoughts? What kind of responses do you have of, of this, this kind of thing that I'm laying out? I think it's interesting that there's like a lot of times for like the ask and it will be given to you, seek and you'll find, knock and the door will be open to you. I went to like an Episcopalian elementary and middle school and like the amount of times that I heard that in like every single service was like really often. So it's like I probably had never even read it in the Bible at that point, but I had heard it and I could recite it because it just kind of like from the first time you hear it, then you hear it the next chapel service and it feels like you can already say it again on your own. Mm -hmm. So I do find that it's like a easily memorizable verse, which could maybe play into the fact that it is like so exact in like both of the books. So I just thought it was funny that it appears so often. And then it's like one of those things that's exactly the same in two of the gospels. Yeah. Interesting to have those experiences. And I would say I had similar experiences as a child. There are certain ones that are just word for word there. Yeah. I thought your point about um, just how little we memorize things now is um, really interesting to me. I, I literally told somebody the other day that I can't memorize anything. I only um, remember things based on like pictures. <laughs> and so um, I am it's so hard because when you hear like oral tradition, you like immediately want to not trust it. Um, Cause you're like, Oh, well, it's not a written document. Like this is invalid, but it's because of the moment that we live in. Like we don't memorize anything anymore. So of course it doesn't seem like it's um, it's real, but it like is a very real way. And the, uh, like the typical way that oral histories were pa- that histories were passed was orally. So yeah, I just, it's funny. I was just talking about that. But yeah, and it's interesting to hear you say you when you hear the very idea of an oral history, you're you're tempted to mistrust it. Yeah, as as if as if the pictures we all see on our on our computer screens are trustworthy. Uh, yeah, I saw another set of pictures from a Palestinian friend actually from from Palestine this week, and Bernie Sanders was in every one of them. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm sorry, that's on the side. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, Photoshop is changing everything. 
Yeah, that's for sure. But, but yeah, if anything, I, you know, I think back, um, this gentleman's now passed away, but, you know, probably 15 years ago, one of the folks I was, one of the guys I was getting to know in Gainesville was probably 80, 81 at the time. And, um, I loved listening to him tell stories about Gainesville and its history and what was going on in this church or that church or, or at the hospital or whatever. Um, and part of what struck me at the time was, was how utterly reliable that source was. He's talking about things that happened 40 years ago. Well, I mean, I'm, you know, all but 70 right now. And so what, what, if I tell you about something that happened when I was 30, you know, when I first met April or something, I, I think you can trust my memory on that. Uh, you know, it's worth having more than one memory involved in these things, but, but these are actually very trustworthy sources that we're talking about. And when you add that memorizable element, to not just an oral history that you kind of remember and retell, but very specific, memorable phrases like ask, seek, knock. Um, a lot, a lot can go on there. And, and I think that's what we've got in, in, uh, in the Matthew Luke, uh, thing here. And particularly in Luke's retelling, uh, choosing to, to tell them again and to give them to us just the way Matthew did. Um, it is time to stop. I encourage you then read, read in Luke from chapter nine to 19 for next week. Um, be looking for the overall themes, um, specific themes that you see there. And then the overall development of the narrative in Luke and then uh, focus. You can use these three pages that we started with today to kind of focus on the episodes that are unique to Luke, but then see how he weaves them together um, with the entire thing and just how he tells the story. And we'll focus on those more unique uh, aspects of Luke um, next week when we get together. All right. Good to see you all. See you again next week.